So we've all now watched all 10 episodes of, uh, what's it called again? (laughs) 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 Sorry, let's try it again. You can't prove it. You got nothing legit. Welcome to the Docket Staircase After Show Special, Chapter 7, The Blowpoke Returns. Hi, I'm Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. How are you, Emily Tammon? I'm just fine, sir. How are you? Good. Good. You know. Hanging in there. It's the lazy, waning days of summer. Families reunited. That's nice. Children are back from camp. Spratts. Yep. Yeah, everyone's back. It's nice, but it's, of course, brought a lot more chaos back into our lives, but... That's how we, that's where we thrive. House can't stay clean. We're trying. We're doing our best. Can't get anything done between five o'clock and nine o'clock. No, God, no. No more binge watching the OC for us. We're back on parent duty. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, other than that, just been watching some Staircase, uh, doing a little legal research this afternoon for today's episode. Good times. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh... Anything you want to add? What's the latest with you? Uh, not too much. Just same old, just doing the stuff. Yeah, working the work. In Ontario, for our non-Ontario listeners, we have a crazy new government, uh, <laughs> with our premier being Doug Ford. Um, for those of you in the United States, you might know him better as the crack-smoking mayor Rob Ford's older brother. That's That's the one. So they've been coming out with like crazy criminal justice policies and stuff like that and funding announcements to deal with gun violence that make no sense and you know just the nonsensical stuff that you'd expect and so I've been doing a lot of writing and commenting on that which has been exhausting. The repeal of the modernized sex ed curriculum uh, in response to which the teachers union said we will defend our members to the bitter end if they choose to teach you know proper consent and some of the modernized aspects of the curriculum in response to which the government has uh, announced that they will be establishing a snitch line uh, encouraging parents to call and report on teachers who teach the new slash now old curriculum uh, in the place of the 15-year-old outdated curriculum that they have now been mandated to teach, at least in the interim. Yeah, if you talk about consent or, you know, transgendered people or same-sex marriage. Cyberbullying. If you use the word penis and vagina. <laughs> like, but... but It should be called a PP and a vivid JJ. <laughs> what? Front kind bum and back bum. What universe are we living in when you have a sex ed snitch line, is what I would like to know. That isn't, that is just, I don't even, I can't. So, It's bringing it back old school. Like when there used to be the sex lines. That's (laughs) what people should do. Instead of snitching, you should call in and try to have phone sex with whoever answers. (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. Anyway, all of that to say is that when we do wrap up our series on the staircase, there will surely be lots to discuss. There is lots to discuss. There is. That's for sure. And I'm trying to get Drake to come on the podcast. (laughs) That's right. Yes, you've been tweeting at Drake. Good work. Um, Actually, I should say that, um, you know, sometimes people are looking for podcast recommendations and I'd like to make one. Go for it. So there is a a new podcast called Objection, as you might have uh, intuited from that title. It is a legal podcast, (laughs) Um, but it's put on by some fantastic lawyers it, uh, it, it deals with legal questions and inequities that, that uh, exist in Canadian law. It's uh, done by Kelly Doctor and Nadine Blum. Blum, thank you. Um, and I'm on episode two, so it's great. But it also is really well produced and really thoughtful. The first episode deals with 
um, sort of unpaid labor and, and employment law. The second episode um, that I'm on deals with some inequities in the jail and uh, that we've talked about on the podcast before about, you know, forcing people in jail to pay exorbitant rates for their, for their phone calls. Um, and looks at the issues from different sides, talking to different lawyers and people affected by it. It's a really great podcast. It's called Objection! Exclamation point. And it's very well produced, which we find offensive because it's not really nice um, for our peers and colleagues to be putting out podcasts uh, when we just sit in our living room and talk in a microphone and they're using all their fancy music and their fancy transitions. Good for you guys. That's awesome. It's a good podcast. It sounds good. So anything else you want to plug before we move in to talk about chap- uh, episode seven, chapter seven of The Staircase? I do. You do? There's something else you want to say? There is something I want to say. Oh, it's very important. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing's award-winning criminal law series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for members of the criminal bar and judiciary, anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Don't Look at Me, Emily Tamman, Justice... Vincenzo Rondinelli got the thumbs up there for our listeners Emond is offering 10% off titles in the series just visit emond.ca slash cls that's e-m-o-n-d dot c-a slash c-l-s and enter code staircase 10 at checkout you should do that it's a good series it's very solid it is good books I really Lots like of it words. yep so, um, moving on to uh, Netflix's docuseries, The Staircase. Uh, on this episode, we see the fourth anniversary of the commencement of the trial, which is pretty crazy because I think it was initially only scheduled for much shorter than four months. I can't remember. but uh, So, we're now hitting the four-month point. And as we know, the uh, prosecution has closed its case and we see... Uh, the kind of key players for the defense team, including Michael Peterson, um, engaged in a discussion in relation to whether the defense should call any evidence, and if so, what evidence they should call. This, to me, is not an academic exercise at all because I have a real question in my mind about A, whether we should put on any evidence at all, uh, and B, uh, if we should put on evidence, what it should be. The one thing I have absolutely no doubt in my mind about and this particular topic is that you shouldn't testify. I don't see any upside to that and I see lots of downsides but obviously Mike this is your decision you know, this is your life. Whether you should testify is your call. Perhaps one of the biggest decisions in any in the life of any trial is whether the defense calls evidence and specifically whether the accused is going to testify. That's right. And I think, you know, like any good defense lawyer, um, David Rudolph knows his place. He's there, you know, to take instructions from his client. But he, you know, he's basically saying, oh, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that you should not testify. But of course, it's up to you, Mike. It's your call. It's completely your call. But um, and especially knowing the type of client that Peterson is, um, I think he's kind of cleverly signaling what his advice would be. Uh, But of course, emphasizing that at the end of the day, it is Peterson's call. Yeah, it always is the accused person's call and a great way to, you know, find a, a complaint about, you know, professional negligence, uh, f- find yourself before the law society is to force your client to testify or not testify or, um, you know, put the screws to them and, and get them to make a decision that they don't otherwise want to make. It's ultimately their choice. Um, I've definitely had times where, I think my client needs to testify and they choose not to. Um, and you get side instructions saying that they should testify. And I've definitely had lots of times where, um, you know, I, I don't want my client to testify. I don't think that they should and they insist on it. And you get signed instructions saying that they want to testify despite your advice that uh, they shouldn't. And I think in this case, they really seem to really hit the nail on the head as to what the dilemma was, right? Like, because... Um, they talk about the absence of a real story, especially from the defense, right? So you have a lot of forensic evidence and uh, expert evidence, and um, but you don't, other than kind of how Peterson, the Petersons' marriage was described kind of in the opening, you don't have really much in the way of a body of evidence speaking to that. And I think uh, Tom Maher made the point 
really well when he said, you know, um, if we do call evidence, we kind of lose some of the benefit of reasonable doubt. That's not technically true in law. Like the reasonable doubt is what it is. The standard doesn't change based on whether the defense calls evidence or not. But he's kind of saying, if we think that we can make this case just on reasonable doubt on the basis of the prosecution's case, if we start calling experts, if we start presenting an alternative theory, it kind of becomes our version against theirs. Again, that is not technically correct in law and the jury shouldn't be instructed that they have to choose between the two, but he kind of understands that you're moving a little bit more into dicey territory, you know, where the jury's concerned in terms of their actual capacity to properly apply the burden of proof. Yeah, it's the difference between sort of a legal burden and sort of a tactical decision or a tactical burden. Uh, and I mean, I do think that there are some times when an accused person has to testify. Um, if you're in front of a jury and it's a murder case, I think that an accused person generally has to testify. And if they don't testify, there's usually good reasons for it. In Canada, if you if an accused person testifies, it means that um, the the judge or the jury is showing their criminal record. If they don't testify, then the judge or jury doesn't see their criminal record. So sometimes, if you have a client with a long record, and you know you to some extent you can sort of sanitize that because of you know reasons of prejudice that that it it, it could it could raise, but sometimes a long record with perjuries and, you know, offenses of dishonesty and some similar offenses makes it, you know, difficult for an accused person to testify. Sometimes they can't testify because they are incapable of doing it because of their demeanor or, or you know, the way they hold themselves. They're, you know, hot-headed and argumentative and, and things like that. But generally, I think that juries want to see someone testify. You can talk about reasonable doubt all you want. You can talk about burdens of proof all you want. Most of the successful murder defenses I've seen, the accused has testified. And I think the same is true for sexual assault cases. If it's a he said, she said case, if the accused doesn't testify, it's really just a she said case. And you can poke holes in that. You can talk about reasonable doubt. But I think sometimes even judges, even properly legal trained triers of fact, sometimes need to hear it from the accused mouth that they didn't do it. Yeah, and I think you can, you know, obviously have more confidence if it's a judge alone trial that the judge will be, you know, certainly at, at a minimum covering his or her own butt in their reasons if they are convicting in a context where the accused didn't testify to be very sure that they don't leave the impression that they drew any adverse inference from the failure to testify. But I think this would have been a real, like I can see why this was a conundrum for them. I mean, Peterson doesn't have any of the things that you just described. He doesn't have a criminal record. Um, and we don't know if he gave a statement to the police when he was arrested. I assume not because we didn't hear anything about it. But that's another factor that you often take into account. Sometimes an accused statement can be led by uh, the Crown Attorney as a piece of evidence, but sometimes an accused statement can be reserved and, and not put before the court unless the accused testifies to cross-examine them on it. And there can be some statements that they make to the police at the time of the arrest that you know, might be very problematic and might, you know, box them in in terms of what they can testify to. And that sometimes makes your decision for you. Yeah. So in this case, you don't have a lot of those factors in play. But what you do have is a lot of like quite prejudicial evidence, um, char bad character evidence, if we can call it that. I mean, I don't think that evidence that you've had sex with men is bad character, but it's certainly they're attempting to leverage it as that. Um, and so, you know, if the if Peterson does testify the jury's just going to hear a whole lot more about all of that stuff, right? Because it's going to be put to him. And so, well, how could you have had a happy marriage? And then we saw some, but not a lot, of the kind of dry run that, um, <laughs> remember the the uh, the witness preparation expert that uh, Peterson met with, uh, was trying to get him to sing and all that. But you, you can sort of see why Rudolph might have had concerns about how Peterson might present on the stand, in particular, um, in contrast to how he presents in real life. Like, I think Rudolph probably was quite concerned that Peterson would come off other than how he actually is um, because he would try to be too smart or he would, you know, whatever it is. So really tough decision. And if I were in their shoes, what would really be preoccupying me is that kind of at every stage where they felt things are sh should go their way, they haven't, right? So like, how could the judge find that this is relevant? It goes in. How could the judge find? So 
you know, they feel pretty confident that there's reasonable doubt on their case. Um, you know, a couple, like Ron Garrett expresses the view that he sees a hung jury at this point with no evidence. Um, so tricky. But anyway, ultimately, I don't know that there was ever a real question that they were going to call, not call any evidence at all. I mean, they had all these experts lined up, um, relatively compelling um, testimony to give. So, you know, yes, they decide they're going to proceed at least with some of that. Yeah, and I think the one of the only maybe sort of tactical differences between uh, the United States and Canada is in Canada, at least if you don't call any evidence as the defense, then you get to close to the jury second. So it means the, the Crown makes a closing submission and then you can make your closing submission and have the last word, um, which is very, very good in terms of, you know, jury dynamics. If you call evidence, even if it's one sentence of evidence, then you have to close first and the Crown gets the last word to the jury, which is an unfair and I don't understand why procedural uh, quirk we have here. But, you know, that's a factor as well. Sometimes you might, if it's only a marginal piece of evidence in front of a jury, you might not call that piece of evidence because... In some cases, it could be more valuable to, to maintain your order of closing to the jury last. Yeah. So having decided that they are going to call evidence, we now start to see the preparation with Henry Lee, who's the blood spatter expert. I like that guy. I get a kick out of him. He's kind of hilarious. Um, but do you share the same question that I do about how it's possible after all this time that all the blood splatter is still is it is it blood spatter or splatter spatter okay all the blood spatter is still intact the staircase has never been cleaned uh and you've it I feel like every time we see Henry Lee he's like taking measurements in the staircase like we, we've seen him on probably three different episodes it's three four different occasions that he's been at the residence and every time he's like <laughs> taking measurements and the height this and- is a filmmaking thing I mean um certainly you know years after the uh the incident and you know at this stage in the trial the blood is still there, but it's hardly a well-preserved and pristine uh, site. The family's been using this place. You see people walking up and down the stairs and lying there and touching things. I mean, this is just, I think, for for the film to convey what he, who he is and what he's doing. Certainly, if he if he were to rely on any of the observations he made years after in that stairwell, uh, it wouldn't be worth very much. Especially since the defense spent a lot of time talking about like integrity of the scene and things like well, that. This, exactly. this is the most inintegral, unintegrally preserved scene ever. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. Like when he was like, well, look at the ceiling. There's nothing on the ceiling. Like, hasn't it been like years? And you're testifying (laughs) like tomorrow. This is the first time that you're looking at at it. Of course not. No. And I know, of course, this is not new analysis. He's kind of, it's like a walkthrough of his evidence, but I just, I don't know. Somehow I thought it was funny. So he concludes once again, bottom line, you know, this was a fall. This is not consistent with a beating. And then after that, we get to see some of the prep that uh, Rudolph and Lee do in advance of his testimony. And this is one thing that I think a lot of lawyers don't do enough of. It's easy to retain an expert, send them the material, get their report, and and spend only a brief amount of time sort of prepping them to testify. but with an expert, it's different than a normal witness. Because, I mean, you need to prep that witness to testify, but they're the expert. They also need to prep you. Exactly. And, um, I mean, it's nice to see some of that dynamic. And certainly when you're a defense uh, lawyer calling an expert witness, um, your main advantage is it's your witness. It's a friendly witness. And you can take uh, hits for that in front of the jury because it can seem like a hired gun. But one of the advantages of having a defense witness is you get to spend time, you get to prep with them, you know what they're going to say, and you can go over their evidence so there are no surprises. But then you have to examine them in chief, which is something you almost never do. <laughs> what happened next? Yeah. And then what did you conclude? Um, what struck me was when they were, um, like when basically Henry Lee was using the little droppers of blood to like show different spatters, and they're talking about blood and spatter and calcium, and they're like, both Rudolph and Lee are like chomping away on these gigantic sandwiches. <laughs> like, I just thought it was so funny. They're like eating loudly and yakking and like talking blood. It's, 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 I'm sure it's the same for, you know, prosecutors and police officers and paramedics and defense lawyers. I mean, 
when I actually take a step back and think about the number of autopsies I've seen and skin peeled away from faces and gruesome things, including, you know, especially if there's any sexual dynamic in any case, the things you see are gruesome and the way you deal with that is uh, eating about eat. it. And I didn't show the joking about it, which is no. uh, the dark sense of humor that I think is pervasive in many of these uh, occupations. That's true. And as much as I really, I like Henry Lee, I think he's great. I think he's funny when he's testifying too. I still, every time I see any of the blood spatter stuff, I just shake my head. Like I just have a really hard time seeing it as being a real science. Yeah, when you start getting into the, well, obviously she shook her head and she coughed Cough multiple times. Over and like, her arm. like Yeah, I it's... Uh, look, I know that um, Rudolph has tweeted out some links to stories about falls, actual falls down the stairs. Um, and And one of those cases, I clicked on the link and I read the story and there were pictures and there was like a huge amount of blood from what was definitely an accident because the woman survived. So, I mean, there can be lots of blood because of an accident. I mean, just think about the amount of times you get a nosebleed or a cut on your head and how much blood there can actually be. But still, it's so much blood. So much blood. And then we move on to the sisters going to Duke to look at stuff. And I didn't take any notes. So I just want to skip over that because they're useless. And that was just weird. Yeah. Back to the trial, day 49. Back to the trial. <laughs> Um, so this is now the biomechanics expert, right? Ferris Bandak. I wish we knew a little bit more about that because is this also one of these kind of pseudoscience type experts? Like, because he, like, he's basically taking the position that a pathologist or a coroner or whatever can give you a cause of death that is physiological but that they don't necessarily have the expertise to give you the causation part in the sense of what happened. Like I, Well, I, I mean, he certainly has more expertise in terms of forces and the result of those forces and, and things like that, right? Um, about, you know, how far you need to fall to crack your head a certain way and how many lacerations. Like, I mean... I think things like that are probably, you know, in his wheelhouse. And no, but I just, for me, it feels like another one of those sort of, quote, forensic experts that I'm a little skeptical of. Um, but he, he did a pretty good job. Like, he didn't come across super arrogant when he was pushing back in cross-examination when, it, that when Frida Black was trying to put to him, like, well, wouldn't you agree that the person who's there with the actual body and touching it and feeling the organs and whatever is 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 going to give a better opinion than someone who's not there. And Her opinion is death by violent homicide or whatever <laughs> it was. Homicidal violence, yeah. Like, I mean, I think that that this witness, and it would have been nice to see more of this witness, and, I mean, when was the trial again? 2004? Three? Because, you know, the animations are a little dated. I'd like <laughs> to see better animations than this. Um, but... I think this witness is sort of important to answer the questions that we just had, right? How can you get all these injuries from just falling down the stairs? And this witness says, it's possible. It's possible to, to get those injuries falling down the stairs. Yeah, he sort of says, you know, I, I can give an opinion as to whether a fall is realistic, possible, likely, right? And so in some ways, what he does is what we very much criticize Deaver for doing in that he's sort of trying to model <clears throat> how it could have been a fall as opposed to objectively looking at the scene and giving an opinion as to what the science says likely happened, right? But that is important because you know that um, just leaving it hanging that, well, it must have, we think it was an accident. The jury needs some kind of reassurance, I think, that the injuries, the really extensive injuries um, that Kathleen Peterson had could be the result of a fall. And I think, you know, the, the video you talked about, how it was a bit out of date, but it's also very sanitized, right? It's like very white. There's like no face. It's like just this kind of like weird. <laughs> he chopped off her face. <laughs> anyway, so I think it was, I think it was good. And uh, I mean, from there we move into the conversation about telling a story. And I think that Peterson is very good in his sort of communication about what a trial is. Um, and it's all about telling a story. 
that's what I do for a living, is, is tell stories. Exactly. And, and everybody wants to hear a story from right. the time they're little babies. This is the story. Right. And better a nice story than a, than a scary story. And I do see where we haven't told a story, except in the sense that here are the forensics, and that's cold and whatnot. But I don't know how you get in to the story, anybody's story, without going into the other side, the bad stuff, that everybody doesn't particularly want to have come out in their life. Because for every good thing, there's, if there's not at least a bad thing, somewhere back there, there's a, there's a spin on it that can come back. I don't know. And so if a trial is telling a story, um, you know, the biomechanical evidence is part of that story, right? It's a story about how this could have happened. And then, you know, the point that's sort of made is that they've told a scientific story so far, but they haven't really told a personal story. That's right. And I think the jury expert got it really well when she said, you know, listen, when the jurors are deliberating, if they're having a back and forth and a disagreement on the science and they can't reach a consensus on the science, they're going to fall back on emotion, right? Like they're going to kind of almost go with their gut if, if they really can't reconcile, um, you know, a disagreement they have about the science. And then Ron Garrett made a really interesting point. I hadn't even really thought about it that way, but he said, you know, the DA has not called a single witness who can say anything negative about Michael Peterson. Like he says, the absence of that evidence is incredibly powerful. And um, that the absence of a story on the DA's part, right? We're preoccupied with like, well, have we told a story? But it's like, they really haven't told a story either. And that some of the reasonable doubt could be drawn out of their failure to kind of be able to find anyone, any of her colleagues. Um, you know, they talk about how her, her daughter was sitting in court all the time and she doesn't get called as a witness. So... Um, and the reality is because one of the sisters gets called, but we saw her evidence, right? It was kind of like, yeah. well, knowing what I know now, but yeah. really she didn't have anything negative to say about the time that she saw them together. So that was interesting. Um, and then coming from there, we have the site visit, the the jury attending at the scene. Maybe you can explain a little bit about what that's all about. It's super unusual. Like it's not something that happens very much uh, in Canada. I mean, there's been a handful of cases over the last decade here in Ottawa where there's been scene visits. Um, the first, one of the first murder trials I did um, as sort of a junior counsel, we had a scene visit. Um, and it's the only time that, you know, I've ever done one. It's the only time that anyone in my firm's ever done one. Um, and I mean, it's a very odd thing. I wish we could have seen some of the background, like who wanted because this is during the defensive case. case, right? So was there any challenge to that? And like, what were the considerations there? Because, I mean, I guess the jury already has a sense that Michael Peterson was a wealthy person. They've probably seen a lot of photos of his plays. Um, I'm not, I, I don't really know what the value added would have been in a case like that. Yeah, I mean, and it's not something you get to do just because you want to do it. I mean, uh, you have to demonstrate that there's sort of a need to do it. Uh, in the case that... that I did. It was a very complicated uh, scene where the death happened. It was um, at the intersection of two roads, but an under pedestrian underpass that went underneath those roads. And there was like multiple entrances and exits. Stairs coming down. And, like... you know, there was lighting issues because, you know, certain lights were burnt out and it was uh, at a certain time of night and shadows were important and things like that. Um, but the scene visit is very controlled. Um, when we went, it was, you know, the crown, the defense, the judge, um, uh, court clerk, the jury handlers and the jury. We went um, uh, sort of into groups. The jury went in their own bus and all, all the court personnel and, and lawyers went in, in a second bus. There we did a walkthrough first without the jury. So we would know exactly where we were going. Um, there was no talking. Um, the jury, I uh, was instructed not to say anything or talk. The lawyers didn't talk. The judge didn't talk. Because, of course, none of it's on the record, right? You don't have a, yeah. a recorder out there. There's, it's not videotaped. And unlike in the States, there was no press. There was no photograph. There's nothing like that. But in terms of uh, the scene itself, I mean, there was, you need to have police out there to shut the scene down to make sure that people weren't walking through. We needed to get the city to turn a specific light off that was not on at the time of, of the murder. Did you go at night? We went at night, yeah. We went, uh, and the date of the alleged murder, our client was actually acquitted. 
um, was different than the date of the trial. I think it, you know, the trial happened in, I think in September, October, and, and, and the incident happened in the spring or something. So we went at a time when the light would sort of be the same and, and things like that to try to make it as, as, as similar as possible. But it was a bizarro experience, like sitting on a school bus with a judge and the crowns going down to this, you know, this alleged murder scene. And so I guess in the case of the <clears throat> Peterson trial, the um, there was one reporter that was allowed to attend. And then you see him basically scrumming with like all the other journalists afterwards. And he talks about how he noted that a number of the jurors had entered the stairway, gone up a couple stairs and kind of swung their arms around. So um, that he had the impression that they were sort of putting their minds to how this all could have happened and really trying to wrap their heads around the size of the <clears throat> the stairwell and that kind of thing. So that was it was interesting to see that. Yeah, and then from there, I guess we move on to the most important thing in this episode. <laughs> My note just says, blow poke, exclamation mark. So what's up with this? What the fuck? I do not know what to make of this. Like, I don't know what to make of this. So Clayton Peterson, Michael Peterson's son, apparently stumbled upon the blowpoke. It was never really made clear why he was looking for it or what he was looking for. It sounded like he was looking for the blowpoke. Um, he's in the garage, um, and he basically looks in the trunk of the car, turns around, and it's just sitting there. And why is he looking in the trunk of the car? He must have been looking for something else. It was not maybe the missing blowpokes, maybe in the trunk. Like I don't know. but And the police had done a search, right? They'd done a search of the entire house, and they hadn't found it. And according to Rudolph, who, you know, later attended the scene and went and looked, it was it was right there. Like, to him, it was unfathomable that the police could have not found it if it had been there at the time. Someone said, I can't remember who it was, that it kind of looked like a shower rod that maybe, you know, and also at at the time of the search, how sure were they that they were looking for a blowpoke? Like, I don't know when they came to the theory that it was the blowpoke. But in any event, once they had that theory, you think they would have made some effort to, like, look for it. Uh, it so had, really it had weird. Obviously, been there for a while. It obviously been there for a while. It was covered in disgusting bugs and cobwebs and spiderwebs, and it didn't have any apparent, you know, blood or tissue or anything on it. I mean, we don't know at this point it, um, whether there's any analysis or anything of that kind um, that's been done. But um, it's just like, how did like forget the police? Like, how did nobody ever find this blowpoke? But at the same time. Is Clayton just stumbling upon it? But what, it's been there for the last six months, but not the last two years. It's very strange. Um, Peterson himself says, I don't believe it's been here this whole time. I just don't see how it could have been here this whole time. And he does seem genuinely confounded, but... I I think, I mean, he seems... His reaction seems honest and stuff, but... um, I mean, I think they do ask what sort of is the big question here. I'm Mar- but Margaret, you went to get him? Yeah, I just yelled, Dad, we found the blowpoke. <laughs> Come on, let's oh. go. <laughs> we were terrified. We were, we were freaked. That, you know, literally freaked as to what happened. So we got, Margaret got her video camera out. I got the, uh, and she got the tape recorder. And we were going to, and I called Tom by this time. And, you know, if the cops show up, we're just going to... You can't come into this house until my attorney, who is, I thought you were going to show up on a motorcycle, uh, appear. So now uh, you're waiting on Tom. What are you doing while you're all waiting on Tom? We went in the den. Okay. And Tom said, I want to talk to you, Dad. And I'm going to ask you, would you bet your life on that blowpoke? And I know exactly what he was doing and what he was saying. Dad, Dad, I know, you know, if there's any chance there's blood or hair or anything on that blowpoke, I'll take that goddamn thing and send it to Jordan Lake. He didn't say that, but I knew that's what he was getting at. So, you know, I said, no, absolutely. I would bet my life on that blowpoke unless the cops, because we're still going through this conspiracy thing, unless the cops came, got blood, and put hair on a goddamn thing. Um, so then, uh, then our next concern was Clayton. He did this. He put it there. You know, and we talked to him, and we talked to him, and said, look, you got to tell us the truth. Is, is this, is this legit? Is it legit? Is it legit? And, you know, if so, what are we going to do with it? I mean, as a defense lawyer, the first thing that you want to do is find out what that's going to say, right? The same questions that, you know, they asked before the defense counsel got here. 
Um, you know, is it a good thing? Is there going to be anything on it that we should find? Is there any reason to think that there could be blood on it? Like, how did it get there? Who found it? Like, those are all the questions you need to answer before you figure out what you're going to do with it. Yeah, and then we, we see the lengths that they go to to really preserve the blowpoke in the condition in which they found it because obviously it's going to be critical if it does become evidence for the jury to appreciate in the same way that they did on site just how dusty and, you know, that it looked like it had been sitting there for a while. Like, this is not something that someone just went and dug up or, you know, uh, took from a storage locker somewhere and brought into the house. The, the discussion about... So Rudolph is kind of saying, like, okay... I don't really know how this is going to play. Um, there isn't really a downside unless the jury thinks it's um, been staged. But it kind of, I think, what we don't see is the discussion in relation to, like, what obligation, if any, do they have? This is, like, a pretty... This is potentially the murder weapon, right? So um, this is something that you and I were chatting about a little bit um, because I think there's a sort of a, a... There's the tactical piece, like... If, do we want to use this and if so, how? But there's a separate um, sort of ethical legal question. So let's talk uh, ethical legal question first, and then we'll talk what we would do or what we sh- think we should do in the case. Um, so let's go back to first principles, right? When we're talking about ethics, what do we mean? Does the defense have a duty to inform someone does the defense have a duty to call the police yeah so for in particular non-lawyers who are listening but even for lawyers these are these are some of the most complex um ethical questions this isn't legal advice that we're talking here (laughs) so you got some evidence we don't know what the hell we're talking about but i mean if i remember anything from legal ethics it's that the case studies are challenging in their own right, but trying to extrapolate principles and applying them to ethical dilemmas that could arise in the course of your own practice is genuinely challenging. Because by definition, when you find yourself in a situation like this, it is a unique and novel and sort of like aberrational situation. That's right. And lawyers are subject to a number of professional obligations, probably the most important of which um, is in relation to the client. But lawyers are also... Um, responsible for the administration of justice. You know, it's a it's a breach of professional obligations to lie to a judge, to, um, you know, like there's a, a whole host of rules. But, you know, everyone's familiar with solicitor-client privilege probably, right? And the duty of confidentiality. So, I mean, w- one of the examples that, that might be helpful in seeing, you know, uh, an analogous sort of example is the... Paul Bernardo case, which was a gruesome and horrific and high-profile murder. And after Bernardo was charged, he called his lawyer and told his lawyer that there were videotapes that depicted the murder. Actually, just to back up, he didn't even tell his lawyer what was on the tapes. He told his lawyer that there was evidence concealed in his house and where it was, and that he wasn't to even look at it until he received further That's instructions. Right. And then so his lawyer went and retrieved the hidden tapes um, and uh, viewed them and then sat on them for 17 months before ultimately turning them over to... He got legal advice and stuff like that, and then he turned them over to the Crown attorney. Yeah, that's right. So this is a... a the Bernardo murders are some of the most notorious murders in all of Canada. But this case is also a very notorious legal ethics case for lawyers for a couple of reasons. One, it just asks and answers the question, is physical evidence covered by solicitor client privilege in the sense that this lawyer <clears throat> seemed to believe, and it's, I can understand why he would have had this at least question in his mind, that you know because he found the tapes, through something that his client told him and that he can't disclose to anyone what his client tells him. So this is a a kind of legal question that's answered, which is that physical things are not covered by solicitor client privilege. Yeah, because the creation of the tapes and, you know, hiding them in, in, in the house uh, in our case, in the staircase's uh, case, the uh, depositing of the the blowpoke and the potential use or not use of it pre-existed the solicitor-client relationship. Anything that was said about the tapes, anything that your client told you about the blowpoke, um, that would be covered because that arose in the context of that relationship. But clearly, you know, things with respect to the murder uh, or the accident here uh, predated the relationship. 
Yeah, so if, if Bernardo had simply told his lawyer that there were tapes and told him what was on the tapes, but if the lawyer didn't know where they were and didn't have possession of them, that would be a different issue altogether. Um, what ended up happening in the Bernardo case, though, is that the lawyer who retrieved and then maintained the tapes for 17 months was actually charged with obstruction of justice. So in the course of adjudicating whether he was guilty of obstruction of justice, the question arose about solicitor-client privilege. Okay, fine, that was answered. It's not covered by solicitor-client privilege. Um, but it, it was a, you can see even the court, at one point the judge says, essentially, well, it appears that he only did relatively cursory research about what his ethical obligation was in this situation. But even if he had done comprehensive research, he probably would not have found yeah. an easy answer. I mean, I think the one easy answer is that there was some suggestion where, you know, when Clayton found it, um, he asked his dad some sort of question about like, you know, is this going to be bad or something like that? The insinuation being that, like, if it shouldn't be found, then I could disappear. He it. could disappear it, right? And that is something that would be very, very bad to do, because that's not just you know coming in across some evidence, and the defense has no duty to disclose any evidence, right? If you've got you know, text messages that show that you're guilty. You don't have any duty to disclose those to, to the police, but you do have a duty not to destroy evidence. And by um, by throwing the blowpoke in the river or destroying it or washing it down even, um, that could be seen to be obstructing justice because you're tampering with, with evidence. Just as in the Bernardo case, when you took the tapes from their hiding place in the house, you were hiding the tapes. Yeah. And you were obstructing, potentially, if you did it for the purpose of obstructing, you were, you know, obstructing the potential discovery of that evidence by the police. Except what's crazy is when Murray and his associates went and took the tape, it was following 71 days of exhaustive searching by the police, which was described as having basically destroyed the entire house. <laughs> Um, so it's not like, oh, they snuck in before the police showed up and took it. It's like the police had torn the place apart. But but I think where the real dilemma comes in, because again, like you read this case and you kind of nod your head. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, this makes sense. This makes sense. But when you say, you know, the defense doesn't have to turn over text messages or the defense doesn't have to disclose its strategy or if it's calling evidence, it doesn't have to disclose what that evidence is. So how is this really any different? Well, I mean, I think the way that, you know, the tapes are different, right, is that there are active steps to, you know, remove that evidence from, you know, the, the police being able to discover it, right? There's the hiding of the evidence, just as you don't have any duty to disclose text messages. But if you, you know, throw the blowpoke in the river with the intent to make sure that the police could never find it and to make sure that if there's evidence on it that evidence is destroyed then that crosses the line so i don't think that there's a duty in this case i don't think that there's a duty to hand the blowpoke over um i mean it and it this is after a search of the house this is you know a house that they're still living in and still control and it's the defense position that this actually really isn't inculpatory evidence right the, the tapes the tapes prove that Bernardo was guilty. This blowpoke doesn't prove that he's guilty. It's there's actually no evidence on it according to the defense, right? And yeah. I think that that might be different as well. But at the end of the day, I think that no matter what they found, they don't have any obligation to hand it over to the police. But they are they just have an obligation not to destroy that evidence. And then of course, in calling their case and in making their arguments not to make any arguments that like, you know, oh, this magic blowpoke has never been found and things like that. Of right. course, they couldn't say that uh, as they went forward. Yeah, and not to leave it hanging, but in the Bernardo case, um, the lawyer ultimately was acquitted of obstructing justice, but the judge did conclude that the act of obstructing justice had been made out. So holding onto the tape, well, removing them from the scene and holding onto them and never turning them over to anyone um, met the legal definition for the act, but um, obstruction of justice is what's known as a specific intent offense. So it's not enough that you had the general intent to obstruct justice, but your 
specific purpose has to have been to obstruct justice. So it's anyone who willfully obstructs justice. And so the judge concluded here that there was reasonable doubt as to whether the lawyer's purpose for concealing the evidence was to obstruct justice, as opposed to, as he claimed in his um, testimony, that he planned to hold on to the tapes and use them later um, as part of the defense, which is, the judge was a little skeptical of that claim. It shows your client committing murder. But not the murder, everything up until the murder. But what it did show was significantly more active um, involvement on the part of Bernardo's spouse. Um, Who, of course, is equally notorious and had struck a plea deal with the Crown to plead guilty to a manslaughter as opposed to a first-degree murder that she was charged with. And if the police had had these tapes, uh, she would not have been offered the deal. She's since been released from jail, living a, hasn't been charged with any other offenses, has changed her name, has apparently moved on with things. But uh, if the police had these tapes, she would still be in jail now. Yeah, and so, and this is where, like, this would have been a really major dilemma to find yourself in as a lawyer, I think. And, in fact, how it unfolded was that this lawyer himself retained a lawyer. They sought advice from the Law Society, which is the regulating body for lawyers in Ontario, and didn't really get a very definitive or clear answer from them, uh, and eventually turned the tape over to the trial judge. Um, who then turned it to the Crown and it became evidence in the case. But it's really tricky because it is, you're right, that had the police had the tapes at an earlier date, there likely would have been a different outcome for the co-accused, Carla Homolka. Um, uh, but again, like you're in a real quandary in a situation like that. So, but but having said all of that, I don't know how the blowpoke is that different than the tapes. I mean, it's, it's different in that obviously a video and that's depicting the actual forcible confinement and sexual assault of the victims who went on shortly thereafter to be killed um, is very compelling. Like here you have, you have found the thing that the prosecution alleges to be the murder weapon, but the only real basis they have for alleging it to be the murder weapon is some flimsy forensic evidence and the fact that it's missing. And now it's not missing. So it it's, a, I would say it's a kind of, Um, it's almost more like the text messages. It's a more benign, but the prosecution says it's the murder weapon and you're now in possession of the murder weapon as the lawyer. But I mean, if your client, you know, if Rudolph is at Peterson's house and he's like flipping through the coffee table book and, you know, a confession letter falls out that that Peterson had written, right? You're under no obligation to, to turn over that piece of evidence that would definitively, you know, prove the Crown's case to them. Um... I guess a good analogy as well as, you know, the bodies case, right? Which is a fantastic podcast if if you can find it on. Where is it again? Is it more perfect or? Yeah, I think it's more perfect. It's, I mean, they interview the lawyers. They talk with, I think, the mother of one of the deceased or something. Like, it's crazy where the defense lawyer is told by his client where the bodies are. And he goes and he finds the bodies or his client is charged with a murder and is suspected to have been involved in the murder of some young people who are missing so it's not even sure that they've been murdered but they've been missing for a period of time and the client discloses to the lawyer yes i did kill these other missing people and i know where they are and i want you to go to the prosecution and try to use that as leverage to get me a deal on this murder right so you go and tell the da if i get a deal i'll tell them what happened to these young people and the lawyer goes to the like the mine finds the bodies and then you know he is this the lawyer at the time actually hadn't done very many high profile cases before hadn't done very many murder cases before it was a small town and you know was confronted by the parents of those missing kids saying tell us where the bodies are like if you know where they are just tell us that's all we want to know so we can give our kids a proper burial and he's under an obligation not to disclose that information yeah and and that's the thing is because he did approach the prosecution trying to get a deal kind of hinting that he might know and it's it's really interesting because you hear interviews with the lawyer and and the it's known as the bodies case if you if you find the podcast you'll find it it's a real name but um it's a case that we studied in in our legal ethics class and and that and the bernardo tapes are these examples of really really challenging so uh, i mean like in that case if he had moved the bodies or tampered with them or done something then he'd be guilty of obstructing justice right um, 
potentially, if he did it for the purpose of obstructing justice. Well, I don't know what other purposes you would do it for in in that case. But, um, you know, ultimately, it's found that he doesn't need to. That lawyer doesn't need to disclose that information to the Crown or to the police. Um, Those are the hard positions that, you know, defense counsel are put in a lot of the time. And I think, if I remember correctly, that lawyer said, you know, if I had been ordered to, I probably wouldn't have done it. I felt that my obligation, my you know, to keep what my client tells me confidential, um, is tells me confidential, confidentially, is, um, it, it's kind of like journalists. I think he was charged too. I can't remember. It's like journalists too, when they, you know, stick by not wanting to reveal their sources and maybe they get held in contempt, but there's like what the law requires and there's what your professional ethics require of you. And sometimes those things can come into conflict. And I think that's what happened with Ken Murray, um, in the case of the Bernardo tapes and, you know, whether that's a little bit where David Rudolph finds himself, but that's why I wish we had had a chance to ask him this because... I would like to know whether he saw any ethical conundrum or whether under If only we could have asked him these questions. (laughs) If only we'd been more prepared for our interview with David Rudolph. But I mean, I think ultimately where I come down, they don't need to disclose it. They don't need to do anything. In fact, if they don't want to do anything, then what they have to do is not do anything. Like not move it, not disturb it, not destroy it, just leave it. And they can let the sleeping dog lie. Yeah, so we'll come back to this, obviously, because we get to see um, in a subsequent episode how they do deal with the blowpoke. Um, just one little thing at the end there that just sort of tweaked my interest was this kind of not really fully explored, but insinuation that Clayton Peterson is has a troubled background because it's kind of like, oh, I'll just put Clayton on the stand. It's like, he's got eh. a He's got an impaired charge. No, but before, like they say he had a DWI in the last two years and some credit card debt, but there was also some reference to him having been in trouble when he was a freshman in college. I think that was the driving offense. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, and then he was caught driving when he shouldn't be driving. Like, yeah, that's right. I mean, look at him. Like, but he's you, a bit sketchy looking, don't you? He threw a little scarf on him and he looks like an entitled like <laughs> Ivy League kid, right? So I think that's basically chapter seven. I think so. Yeah. So um, we'll just carry on with the chapter eight ASAP. Two a week. Two a week. See ya. Enjoy. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at M Spratt. Thanks for listening.